Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Welcome to Session 5 in our study on the life of Christ. Today we'll be finishing up the Perean ministry of our Lord as found in the Gospel of Luke. And then we're going to begin an extended look at the Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. So join us as we begin our study. Well, let's go ahead and get started. I'm running a few minutes late, but talk fast. All right. Father, thank you for today and for granting us this time to come out to study your word. Thank you for your provision in Christ for eternal life and for the wondrous blessing of knowing you. Guide our thoughts, guide our heart, guide our minds as we study. Thank you so much for all you've done in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's look at Christ's teaching on hell. Um, Where does this come from? It comes out of Luke. Um, Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, the reason I wanted to focus in on this just a little bit here is because Christ had an awful lot to say about hell. In fact, Christ said more about hell than he did about heaven. Do you know that? He spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. Which is, well, yeah, they just wipe it all out. You know, they don't say Jesus talked all about hell. That was all a concoction of the early church in order to scare Christians into behaving and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Christ taught a lot about hell than he did about heaven. And he consistently warned people about the reality of hell. I mean, to Christ, hell was a real place where real people went and really suffered. Um, it wasn't some mythological kind of place. It was a real place. And... Um, When we understand what hell is all about, it's sort of an inducement to share the gospel. And you realize it's the eternal abode of the vast majority of humanity. Most of the people you run into are going to be in hell, far more than will be in heaven. It's a recurrent theme in the Bible. And one of the greatest weapons Satan has is, of course, to what? make people think it doesn't exist, or to distort it in something it's not. Um, It's interesting when you see the, um, when you look at Hollywood and their characterization of hell, it's never as bad as it really is. Even their view of hell is not even close to how bad it is. They got a, you know, sitcoms sort of poking fun at hell. Um, There's one of them on the CW Oh, what's it called? Um, the idea there is this kid has to go and he has to collect people who escape from hell is the basic premise of the show. It's sort of a comedy where he has to go and, and collect souls. I forget the name of the show off the top of my head. Um, but hell is a real place, and Christ warned about it. He knew that people were going there. And um, 
when you look at hell, and I'm not going to do a complete in-depth, we're going to fly over this about 20,000 feet, maybe 10,000 feet, just to talk about it. But when you look at all of Christ's teachings on hell, and I'm, I've pulled all of this together here, so um, what I've done is really do a compendium of what Christ talked about hell. When you look at the, the Bible, there's a word in the Hebrew called Sheol. It means hollow place. Oh, what? Sheol. Hollow place. And uh, universally, it's translated grave in the Old Testament. Um, there's really not much distinction made between the righteous or unrighteous dead. You know, it often said somebody was gathered to their fathers, like um, the kings of Israel when they died. Um, David said, um, he talked about Sheol, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, all right, the grave. And the righteous anticipated resurrection out of the grave. Now, in the Old Testament, it was not fully developed what resurrection was, the grave was, all that. But they had this general concept that there would be a resurrection coming. When you got to the New Testament, however, Christ really expands and gives us a full picture of what this place is all about. When you look in the Greek New Testament, the word for hell is Hades. In fact, when they translated the Greek Old Testament, they translated Sheol as Hades. What is Hades? Hades is the place of the dead. Um, in Greek mythology, it was the abode of the dead. All right. Now, here's one of the problems. Some people say that Greek or that Christianity borrowed from Greek mythology. How do you answer that? Someone said, yeah, your, your, your conception of hell is what the Greeks had. The Christians sort of, you know, took that teaching and went a little bit further, but really it came from the Greeks. It was not really a Christian Bible doctrine. It was borrowed from Greek mythology. How would you answer that? Apart from the name, there's not really that many similarities. It's, a, it's quite a bit different than Greek Hades. But how would you, how would you answer that? Period. Yeah, how would you, how'd you answer that? That was the language at the time? Yeah, it was the language. It was the name for the, the boat of the dead. All right. Christ explained what it was like. But some would say, well, yeah, but Christ borrowed from Greek mythology to get his idea of Hades. What's a good answer to that? No, they borrowed from him. Yeah. Greek mythology, where it did impact or was correct, it borrowed from the truth. Just because there's some similarities doesn't mean Christianity borrowed from Greek mythology. Greek mythology borrowed from Christianity. All right, so you don't need to worry about that trap. The real is the the big twenty thousand foot view here is that Christ taught about the reality of this place. It was a real place. Um, the word itself occurs eleven times in the New Testament, and here's the eleven times that it shows up. Hades. Hades is the abode of the wicked dead. It's the temporary abode of the wicked dead. Now, is Hades eternal? No, no. no it's not. It's temporary. It's a temporary place. Now, when, it, when you see the word hell in the King James, usually it is the translation of the word Hades. All right? Hell is the translation of the word Hades. So, hell 
is not eternal. It's not an eternal place. It's a temporary place. Um, and this nature of this is seen in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 19. And we'll go to that in just a second. Now the next word that's used is the Greek word Gehenna. It occurs 12 times in the New Testament. Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom. And that was the garbage dump in Jerusalem. That's where they tossed their garbage. Now, in those days, you know, they were not as sanitary as us. So they, if you had a, your dog died, you just throw it over the wall into the garbage dump. You know, it was just a pretty vile place. And they kept fires down there to burn up the garbage. But you would throw all your human refuse, all, your, all that stuff would just go over the wall down into this garbage dump area. And when Christ wanted to give a description of what hell was like, he used the garbage dump as the description. And what was down in the garbage dump? Well, you had fires burning. You had worms that would consume the garbage and refuse that was thrown down in there. It was a really gross, vile place. And when Christ wanted to talk about the vileness of hell, he would use the term Gehenna to give its nature. All right. So the idea here is that hell is the technical term for the place that you go. Gehenna is a descriptive term for the same place. It, it's trying to describe something. And Christ often used Gehenna in terms of hell fire, hell fire, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. That's Gehenna he's talking about there. And then there's a couple of other words that you find. There's the Greek word tartaros. Um, it's only used in 2 Peter 2.4. And um, in Greek mythology, it refers to the innermost compartment of Hades in Greek mythology. Um, it's often translated prison. In the, in the King James, I think it's prison, translated prison. And the Bible says that the angels who kept not their first state were bound in prison, Tartaros, this, tar this Tartarosus. And it only occurs there in the New Testament. A word that goes along with it is abusas, abyss. Abyss means the bottom, it's often translated bottomless pit, the abyss. And the abyss in the New Testament appears to be the abode of demons. How do you know that? Well, when the demons, um, when Christ met the ma uh, maniac of Gadara, where did the demons beg him not to do? Don't send us to the abyss. In Revelation, who is led out of the abyss? Demons are let out of the abyss. Where is Satan bound for a thousand years? The abyss. All right. So the abyss is this place where the demons are bound. So the best way I can understand it is the abyss is to demons what Hades is to a human being. All right. You're saying there's two different places? Two different places. Hades, right now, at this time point in time, Hades, if you if an unbeliever dies, a lost person dies, they go to Hades. All right? Where do demons go? The abyss. And I say, well, what demon would go to the abyss? I mean, I thought they were free. Right? I mean, demons are pretty, pretty wild and pretty free. Well, there are some that are bound in the abyss. What ones are abound there? The ones that kept not their first estate. And the demons that ran into Christ begged him not to send them to the abyss, which would imply what? He could have done it. And also implies what? They don't want to go there. Wherever, whatever it's like, it's not a place they want to go. All right? 
And the best in way... Other words, demons know that it's a really bad place. Yes. And there are some demons that are bound there. And some that are bound there are going to be loosed in Revelation, the book of Revelation, to go out and torture mankind. All right? So the best way I can understand it, in my own limited way, is the abyss is to demons what Hades is to a human being. It's a place of confinement, a place of um, torment, a place you do not want to go. And why, why would demons be sent there? They would be sent there if they step over the line. Even the demons have limits. And they know that if they go too far, they're in danger of being sent to the abyss. And that's not a place they want to go. They begged Christ not to send them there, which would imply that he could have sent them there had he wished. The real question is when, when Christ sent them and let them go into the pigs and the pigs killed themselves, where did they go after the pigs died? They're disembodied spirits. They, they're yeah, they're still, they're still on the roam. They're still roaming around. All right. But it, it, it's almost like, think of the abyss as the penalty box. You know, and, and what is it? Uh, Hockey. You know, if you commit an infraction, you go to the penalty box. This is the penalty box, and they don't want to go there. So in some sense, their evil activities are regulated by their fear of this place, that they could go there, all right? Now, what is the eternal abode? Well, the eternal abode is the lake of fire that you find in Revelation 20. Who goes to the lake of fire? Well, who's the first two occupants? Satan. No. Antichrist and false prophet are the first two occupants, yes. Revelation chapter 19. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. Alive. Yep. And then a thousand years later, who gets tossed in? Number three. Satan. Where the beast and the false prophet, by the way, are. The Bible doesn't say where they were. It's where they are. So where are the beasts and the false prophet a thousand years after their center? They're still there. This concept of annihilationism where you go to hell and you sort of burn, you know, tortured a while and then you burn up, that's not in the Bible. There, there's, no, there's no basis for that. It's, the problem is people say, well, I don't like a God that would do that. Well, tough. <laughs> you got to go with what God says he's going to do, right? Where do you get your theology, your own human sensibilities or what God tells you about them? Things not going to change nothing. Yeah, it's irrelevant. God said, God said eternal fire. What does that mean? Well, unless you're Clark Pinnock, which says, no, that's not eternal in the sense of duration. It's eternal in the sense of finality. Where does he get that? Pizza and beer. I don't know where he gets that. He doesn't like the idea that there's an eternal lake of fire. Look, the Bible says very clearly that the lost go to this place. You don't get out. The only time they're ever going to be released from Hades is to stand before God at the great white throne after which they are cast in the lake of fire and you never get out. It's an eternal existence. Um, and by the way, you're going to be there with the demons and Satan who's not the jailer of hell. He's an inmate. He's not in charge of nothing. He's not in charge of anything. That's one of the things, you know, TV shows have... Uh, yeah. Have Satan in charge of hell. Yeah, Satan's yeah. not in charge of hell. Yeah, Satan is not in charge of hell. Who has the keys of death and hell? 
Christ, not not Satan. Yeah, Satan is not in charge of hell. It's not Satan's job to torment people in hell. That's not what he's up to. You bet you have. It's, it, there's nothing in the Bible. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible that says Satan is in charge of hell. There's nothing in the Bible that says demons are down there tormenting people. There's nothing in the Bible. Because that's mythology. That's just... Yeah. I have a buddy I work with. He was like brought up Catholic and stuff. And he said one of the big like aha moments like in his faith was when he realized like that God and Satan are not equal. That God has absolute power over him. Mm -hmm. It's like the same thing. Like knowing that he's not going to be the Lord over hell. He's an inmate. He has no power. Right. Yeah. In fact, I don't think Satan is anywhere near hell because it reminds him of where he's going to be forever. No, Satan is not in hell. The demons are not in hell, tormenting souls in hell. You have. The demons are, a demon is in one of two places right now. Either they are free or they are in the abyss. All right, they're not in hell. You know. And they're going to be an inmate. Why do you know that? Well, Christ said, depart from me and accursed in an everlasting fire prepared for who? The devil, the devil and his angels. That's where they're going to be. All right? So Satan's reward is on the earth, just like uh, his followers. Yeah. He's not in hell. You want to call this a reward. Right. This is the law before the storm. Yeah. He's got nothing anywhere else. No. And you know what the kicker is? He still wants to drag as many people down with him as he can. Just out of spite. Just out of spite. He wants to go down. Because he knows he's going there. Yeah. He's just out of spite. God has all God has all the high cards in the deck. Satan doesn't have nothing. Yeah. God has all power. So I mean Satan's always, you know, been on a leash. Well, you know, I'm going back to what um, Ryan or Brian said there. Um Satan is a being of time. He's created by God. By definition, he is not omnipotent. He cannot be equal to God because God cannot create another being equal to himself. Because by definition, if he does that, that being had a beginning, which means he is not omniscient, not omnipotent, right? An omnipotent being can't be created. Because by definition, omnipotence means you don't have a beginning. It all, it's all wrapped up into that. He can make us in the Imago Dei, but he cannot make anybody equal to himself. He can, God cannot create another self-existent being. There can only be one self-existent being. He cannot do that. God cannot create another sovereign being. Why? Because then somebody's not sovereign, right? Can't do that. Yeah, he cannot create another omniscient being. Why? Because omniscient means you know everything perfectly and the moment you're the very fact of being created means you did not know what happened prior to your creation. I mean, the whole point is God is outside the box, right? And God is the only being outside the box. So anything inside the box of creation can never affect that which is outside. Satan can never win. Fellowship for for someone for him to express his love and compassion and mercy on so. You know, he had to make us eternal. Eternal in the sense of never dying, but not never eternal died. in the sense of never having Always not existed. Been. That's right. Right. 
We have a beginning. We have a beginning, but we'll never have an end. Right. Yeah, God is, is how you going to spend eternity? That's the question. And Christ is warning about the realities of hell. So the question then is, well, what is hell like? Well, there's some that want to say, well, it's temporary. That's Pinnock. And people who call annihilationists, they want to say, well, hell is a temporary, or lake of fire, it's a temporary place. And uh, you go there, you suffer for a time, depending on how bad you are, and ultimately you're wiped out of existence. That's one spin on this. And the people who would say that don't like the concept of a God who is a God of wrath. They say God is a God of love. God would never create an eternal chamber of horrors. Well, what does Revelation 14.10 tell us? The smoke of their torment ascends up forever before the throne. What does that mean? Bible theologians, what does that mean? Forever. Yeah, just what it says, forever. Yeah. You say, I don't like that. Well, that's what God said he was like. The problem is not with God. The problem is with our concept of what we want God to be. That's the problem. The problem with people who buy into this, they don't like the God of the Scriptures. They want to create a new one. Well, the Bible says that's idolatry. Idolatry is creating your own God, the God that doesn't exist. You want to know what God is like, have him tell you what he is like and go with it. The problem today, and I've already run into this, as a pastor, is people don't want to hear the bad stuff. They don't, nope. they don't, they don't want to hear it. That doesn't make my life better. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know. We don't like that. They don't want to hear it. Well, why pastors don't preach on Revelation? Because they're afraid of the book. The, Revelation is one of the easiest books in the Bible to understand, but they, they are intimidated by it. God wins. I mean, God God wins in the end. And And, you know, this is the interesting thing. Revelation is the only book that pronounces a blessing on those who read it. Blessed are they that read and understand and keep the words of this prophecy. There's a blessing. Revelation is not hard to understand. We make it hard to understand. I like the way Vance Havner put it one time. He said, uh, he said this one preacher, all he did was preach on hellfire and brimstone. People got tired of it. So one of the deacons went to the preacher and said, you know, we're just tired of this hellfire and brimstone every week. It's brimstone, brimstone, fire, fire, fire. Why don't you preach on love? And the pastor said, oh, okay, I'll do that. You know, So he came back the next week and preached on love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then the next week he came and preached on love thy neighbor as thyself. Third week he came back and preached on husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And after the Message, the guy went up and said, Look, Pastor, we've all decided just as soon you go back and preach on hell. Forget this love stuff. <laughs> um, he had a way of putting it. But look, hell is a real place, and people don't like the concept of a wrathful God. But that is what God is. And see, we don't understand. Our problem is we don't understand how bad sin is. We That's our problem. The problem is not with God. The problem is with our understanding. We we have a distorted view of how bad sin is. Why? Because we're all sinners. So we're all a bunch of little lumps of coal sitting around talking about how I'm not quite as black as the guy next to me. When in reality, we're all way black. It's just a matter of some minute degrees. What is it like? Some of you say, well, it's temporary. Others say... Um, well, it's a bad place, but ultimately everybody will be redeemed out of hell. Even Satan will be restored to God. Well, that's not what the Bible says. 
There's coming a day of what the Bible calls eternal fixation. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. There's coming a day when your character will be forever fixed, either in holiness or in rebellion against God. There is no, you go to hell, you suffer for a long time, and eventually you make your way out. That's what a lot of, now see that's sort of the concept behind purgatory, right? Yeah. Purgatory is a place where you go and you got to work off your sins, and depending on how bad you were, you might be down there a million years or two million years, but you know, eventually you'll get out, especially if somebody pays enough money to the Catholic Church and lights enough candles and gets the Pope to give you a little bit of the treasury and merit, you can pop out a little bit sooner. That is demonic. That's a demonic doctrine. Demonic. demonic. Catholicism is one of the more demonic religions you'll run into. Now that's not that's not that's not vogue to say in Christianity today. It's not vogue, vogue to say that the Pope is one of the most evil men on the planet right now. But he is. Why is that? He is telling people they can go to heaven when they're going to wind up in hell. Tay absolve, you can't do it. You can't do it. I just wonder what it must be like. You know, you, you kind of think out of the box sometimes. And, you know, here's, here's these people that believe that stuff. And they do all this, they do all this thing to get one of those plenary indulgences. And then, you know, they die and he ends up in hell and he goes, wait a minute, what about my indulgence? <laughs> I'll tell him when he gets here. <laughs> yeah. But don't you think God will, I mean, you can be misled. Like, those people are actually being misled. Yep. I don't think that. Their punishment is not. Some of them don't, don't know because they're not where they can find out. They're know? still guilty. They're still guilty? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. They might say that about us. They're still guilty. Still calm. Yeah. Now, their punishment, their eternal torment will not be near that of what a, the Pope's would be. There's only one way to God, right? The way of the cross. God doesn't say, well, you know, you didn't hear it, so we'll let you in anyhow. Yeah. No, it doesn't work that way. Oh, it don't. I'll no. say this, though. The best place in hell, if there is such a place, it's still no place to be. No. Hmm. You have to come, Brenda, you have to come by the way of the cross. You don't get to heaven any other way than the way of the cross. Right. But if Christ I don't know and never been exposed to it, Because the Bible says in Romans you can look outside and you can see creation. You can see that there's a, there's a God behind it. And if you desire to know that God, he will reveal himself. That's right. Okay. And you are responsible. responsible. For that, that's enough light to send you to hell. Mm. Well, why so many people follow because, well, it, it, there's a good Calvinistic answer to that, and that's because you're born depraved. It's not Calvinistic, it's biblical. The Bible says you're born blind. You're born, apart from God, you're born blind, you're dead in sin, and unless God takes the initiative and opens your heart and helps you see the truth, what are you going to do? You can't see it. We can argue all day long on how that process works, but... Gary and I can argue all day long on how that works, but we both agree on one thing. Unless God takes the initiative, nobody comes to him. Unless the Spirit draws you. Unless the Spirit draws you, you don't get there. That's 
right. Yeah. That's all I can You're making me happy. Yeah, thank yeah. you for loving me, Lord. So what is hell like? Well, it's a place of unrelieved torment. Look at the rich man here. What did he do? He died in being in torment. He lift in where there's torments. He lifted up his eyes. By the way, there's no indication here of a of a um, time lapse between his death and finding himself in Hades. He died and he woke up in hell. Basically, the idea is he woke up in hell, and he was in torments, multiple torments. And he was conscious. There's no indication here that he was unconscious. He was fully conscious. And he had his memory. Because what did Abraham say? Remember your wife. Remember what you were like. And it's interesting when Christ gives this parable, he draws a contrast. Christ was very good at this. Drawing these absolute contrasts. Here's a man, basically the rich man. He had everything he wanted whenever he wanted it. He had absolutely no need of any kind. Every day was a party. He could eat whatever he wanted. He could do whatever he wanted. He had the money to be anything he wanted to be. And here's a man who sat at his gate having absolutely nothing. He had so much nothing that the only way he lived is somebody would throw him a breadcrumb. That's the only way he could live. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, these are not your little pet dogs. These are mongrel curs, scavenger dogs. Now, the Pharisees who heard that are thinking what? That he did something Absolutely. They're thinking, Lazarus, obviously he's an evil sinner. He's under the curse of God. And the rich man, what about him? He's got God's blessing. I mean, he must be a righteous man. He's got God's blessing. God's blessing him. So they looked at material well-being as God's blessing. Yep, and don't a lot of people on TBN do the same thing? Yeah, they do. It's interesting. I was just looking at the last issue of Forbes magazine, Billionaires. I was wondering to myself, you know, all these billionaires in the world, how many of them really... Might be Christians. <laughs> probably zero. Yeah, I mean, it would be very rare, probably. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. But this rich man, and Christ is drawing the contrast. This rich man had everything. This other guy had nothing. The rich man had status. The other guy had nothing. The rich man had friends. The other guy had nothing. In fact, the other guy was hoping to eat the crumbs that fell off the table of the rich man. He had the nothing. Rich man never did nothing to help. And the rich man, and by the way, it's set at his gate. And the word there, interestingly, and, and I think MacArthur brought this out, he was thrown at the gate, the idea of being thrown. In other words, somebody threw him there with the hope that the rich man would see this guy and have pity and give him something to eat. He, he didn't even, it's not that the Lazarus walked there. He was thrown there. Somebody dropped him off there. Yep. So here, here in life, what do you have? You have a guy who has everything, another guy has nothing, and then something happens. They die. They both die. And it says Lazarus was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, there's a big deal about what the Abraham's bosom and all that is. Go back in that day. Do you understand how they had dinner in those days? How they ate? Laid down. 
yeah, the table was low to the ground, and you would recline, all right? Yeah, you would recline, and you would eat with your right hand, all right? So if I'm reclining, leaning with my right hand, and, it, and the place of honor is to the right, then if somebody's in my bosom, what are they? Therefore, your right hand can reach them. And that would place them in the guest of what? Honor. They're the guest of honor. What Jesus is saying is the, the Lazarus was taken straight to Abraham's banqueting table and placed at the head of the table as the guest of honor. Abraham threw a party for Lazarus. And Lazarus was not the guy in the back row. He was at the guest of honor. He was the place of honor. And the Pharisees are just gasping at this point. Like, how, how could that be? How, how, how could it possibly be? Because why? Lazarus is supposedly under what? The curse of God. Right? He's supposed to be under the curse of God. What about the rich man? Well, he dies and he has a funeral. He's buried. What did they do to Lazarus? Probably put him over the wall into the dump. That's what, that's what happened to Lazarus. He was tossed over the wall into the dump to be to rot down in the garbage heap or to be picked apart by the dogs that ate the bones down there. Rich man, however, he was died. He had an elaborate funeral. All the muckety-mucks showed up. They extolled his wonderful guy. But where was he? In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. So you say that, and then you say that immediately after he died, it didn't show no, no um, time span in there. It just showed them immediately in Hades. Yeah. Does it show the Lazarus immediately in heaven? He's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, this is a parable, understand. This is not trying to give us a topological study of what the afterlife is all about, like some have tried to make. Christ is drawing, he's telling a story to give you a contrast. So after death, the roles are reversed. The rich man has nothing. He doesn't even have a name. Why is that? God no longer knows him. There is no relationships in hell. There are no names. There's no hope for a relationship. With who? You're an inmate. You're being punished by God. You're under God's eternal curse. There is no name. You're just an inmate. What about Lazarus? He has a name, doesn't he? Him who God helps. And he's enjoying the company of Abraham. Now, just so you understand just how bad Laz or the rich man's ideas were, he starts talking to Abraham. And what does he ask Abraham to do? Send. That's coming on. Send Lazarus. How's he treating Lazarus? As a slave, as a servant. His, his idea about his supposed status has not changed. Send Lazarus to come over and give me a drink of water. Just, just a drop. What does that tell us about the torment of hell? Your character is, is unchanged. His character is unchanged and the torment is real. 
the torment it, it talks about here is fire, for I'm tormented in this flame. Now, is it flame like we understand flame to be? I, I don't know that, but what is this effect? Scorching heat. Torment. And, and I, I'm told that the greatest pain a person can pretty much suffer is being burned. The searing pain. And this guy is in pain. He's in anguish. He's in torment. Send Lazarus to come over. Then what does he ask Abraham to do? Well, send Lazarus back. Lazarus is sort of his lackey. And tell my brothers so if they so they would do what? Repent and not come to this place. What did the here's the interesting thing. What did the rich man know? His brothers were sinners, his brothers were going to come there. But what do you not find him doing? But what is he not doing for himself? Asking for his own help. He knows he doesn't have any hope. He knows he doesn't have any hope, and why does he know he doesn't have any hope? Not because he knows where he's Because he knows he deserves to be exactly where he's at. You don't see him here arguing about, wait a minute, why am I here? What's going on? This is not fair. This is not right. Wait a minute, there's a mistake. He realizes there's no mistake. He doesn't get out. So you're saying that the way we live our life, then we know what what the end outcome is going to be. Those people who find themselves in hell no. know they deserve to be there. You don't see him arguing saying this is not fair. And, and that, by the way, that's the reason for the great white throne, right? Because at the end of the great white throne, no one can say, wait a minute, you made a mistake, I should be in heaven. There's no mistaking. God's got the books. The books are open, and it's all there. And you can't claim a, a mistrial on that one. You can't suppress the evidence. It's all there. They're going to experience perfect judgment. Perfect, absolute, righteous Judgment. Right. No mistakes. And you don't get out. And you ever stop to think about that? I can't get my head around uh, it. Uh, we'll try to put it in some words. How, what, what I think. It's going to be difficult. I, and I'm just imagining. Standing before an all-seeing God. We know that God is ever-present and God knows all things. But we don't, we've never experienced that to much of a degree in this life, except maybe if you see in a courtroom when the absolute truth comes up and the guilty verdict on the guilty party is absolutely com comprehended and you see the breakdown and the realization of the guilty party. But to stand before God and have him in minute detail explain everything that you ever did, everything that you ever thought, every act, evil deed that you ever did, chronologically, completely, and know every detail. I can only imagine that has to be horrifying. Well, you know, it has to be horrifying. You, you think about these people. And at the same time, that God's looking and God's getting ready to say, judgment day's here, you know, and it's, 
it's it's scary. Well, you, you, scary. you watch those, you know, you watch a show now and then where the guy's up on the stand and, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. Somebody said, well, let's see that. And they run a video showing him shooting the person or whatever it is. It's like, you're nailed, buddy. You're nailed. Uh, all, all of this, you're nailed. And there's a realization that you're, mm. you're exposed. <laughs> and when God shows up and you're not covered by the blood of Christ, every wicked deed is exposed for all, for all of eternity. See, and this is the thing. Here's the bad part about it. It's not just exposed for you, but everybody sees all about you. At that judgment, everybody will know every sin that you ever committed. And they will know that whatever sentence is passed, you're getting exactly what you deserve, no more, no less. There's no question. Why is it that there's this judgment? Because God is displaying to all of the universe that you get exactly what you deserve, no more, no less. He's being perfectly fair. And whatever sentence is passed on you, everybody in the universe knows he's getting a fair shake. There's no question about it. And the, and the beauty of this, and this, this is what I can't get my head around, is when it comes to me and God pulls that big book off the shelf with all my sin and starts turning the pages, there's nothing on them. Because that book was taken and dunked in the blood of Christ. And when it came out of the blood, there was no sin. It was erased. And God says, you know, I've looked through all 15 million pages and I can't find a single sin. But now if you're lost, those pages are full. Christ is saying, look, hell's a place of torment. It's a place of remembrance. One of the great torments of hell is you're going to remember all the opportunities you had to escape it and you didn't. You're going to remember every time you heard a sermon and you scoffed, or you dealt lightly with it. And you're going to remember all of the good things in life with perfect clarity. And you're going to be able to compare that to where you're at now, and that will be an eternal thing. You will not have amnesia in hell. You will remember every good thing in life. And all the times and all the opportunities you had and you wasted. Hell is a place of physical deprivation. What do you mean? No food, no water. No rest. There's not a day off. The Bible says the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever and they have no rest. No rest. An eternal state of anger, anguish and torment. It's a place of darkness. Where the outer darkness. So you think the rich man knew when his family got there? I don't know if he knew that. The Bible doesn't say that the people in hell converse with other people in hell. But it says about heaven, doesn't it? Heaven, of course. In hell, there are no relationships. You might hear other people's anguish down there. You might be aware of that. But I don't think it's like you going and finding your friends and having a conversation. Hell is not about relationships. It's not about conversation. It's about you are in eternal solitary confinement. Because what have you done? You said, I don't want God. I don't want a relationship with God. And God says, okay, no relationship. 
Can you imagine being alone forever, by yourself, in absolute torment, no hope? We can't imagine that. Our brains stop. So when, when you look at Hollywood, any depiction of hell that they have in Hollywood is not even close to what it is. And by the way, these stories of guys that go down to hell and come back, no, they had pizza and beer or something. You don't go to hell and come back. I'll have to admit one thing. I was watching that movie Ghost. <laughs> and when, when the one dude died, that's what I was just going to say. And those dudes come with those dark that, things. Yeah. That was chill. I tell you, man, that, that gave me the chill. I was just going to say that. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. I mean, Pokey is the I know. I mean, they show those demons pulling him immediately. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the demons are not pulling you down to no, hell. It's the angel of death. Angel. You know, or the angel of death is not yeah. pulling you to hell. But, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, the Bible says nothing about this guy being cast into hell by angels or demons or demons dragging him to hell or tormenting him. He woke up in hell. He died here and woke up in hell. No intermediate state. And he was immediately conscious, immediately aware of what's going on. One nanosecond after death. Yeah. Do you think our sense of time is unchanged after death? Um. I don't know how to answer that other than it, it probably is in the sense that there's no clocks, there's no days. That you, there, there, think about it. You're never going to sleep. There, there's, no, there's nothing to measure time with. So the eternal torment is something you can't put your hand, head around. It's, there, time loses its significance. There's no cyclic activity like a night or a day or a sleep or rest or anything like that. You know when I was a kid my dad stick my nose in a corner when I was bad. It seemed like I was in there forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you know I look back on my life and you know some of the, the difficult times you know that you struggle through does seem to go on and on and on. And yet at the same time when you are in those moments of real joy and peace and time don't even seem to exist. And you'll go through three hours, and it'll be like nothing. Yeah. So maybe it'll be the same way on the you know on the other side. In heaven, it's just time's just going to fly, and we're not even going to think about it. But in hell, every second, every second's going to be close. Yes. I know, I know you're not the biggest fan of Irwin Winter, <laughs> but I the one book he wrote, "One Moment After You Die," I think it was called. I had that book, and mm -hmm. it was pretty powerful. Yeah. You know, Irwin's pretty. I like Erwin Lutzer. It's yeah. just I don't. His voice grates on me, but but his theology is straight on. Yeah, it's on. Um, it's a place. It's in your tunnel, There's no escape. You don't get out of it. Yeah. You don't escape this place. Um, there, there's no out to the lake of fire. You're there forever. I think you spend eternity regretting choices. Yes, that's part of the torment. And I think, I think that's part of the built-in torment. Part, I mean, you see it here in the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, Christ said, or Abraham said, remember that in your life you had good things. Remember that. Remember you had it. You're you on top of the mountain. And there's, you'll regret every decision you had in life where you didn't take advantage of the opportunity Christ gave you. Every time you looked up at the heavens and wondered if there was a God and you just said, I'm, I don't need to go there. 
You'll remember that. It's a place of varying degrees of punishment. Part of it is the mental punishment. And also, it's a place, and I like what MacArthur says, it's a place of a fully informed conscience. And that conscience is telling you, you you're getting every bit of what you deserve. Don't blame God. It's not God's fault you're here. It's your fault you're here. And you're getting what you deserve to get. God's just being fair and just. It's a, it's a sobering concept. Who goes to the lake of fire? All the unredeemed of all the ages go there. Who else is there? Satan and his angels. The lake of fire was originally created for them, but men go there because of their rebellion against God. Think of, think of the lake of fire as God's eternal garbage dump. Who goes there? The worthless, the unrepentant, the people who love their sin. You don't get out. It's a sobering concept. But Christ, throughout his ministry, and you, as you read through the Gospels, again, 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 go and, go and count them up. How many, look how many times Christ talked about hell, warning people about the reality of hell, and then telling them about heaven. And you find out he talked more about hell than he ever did about heaven. To Christ, it was a real place. And real people went there. You know, because you... Mm -hmm. And then um, another topic that Christ constantly talked about is the cost of discipleship. We're doing here some of the topics, trying to get some of the topics. When you look at the life of Christ again, 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 he said, you know, you want to follow me, it's going to cost you something. Now, what are we, what are we told today by the average Christian person? Your best life now. Come to Christ and uh, you'll have everything you need. Come to Christ and He'll meet all your needs. Look, Christ said, if you're not willing to abandon everything, I don't want you. I don't want you. Um, think about the Army. You know, Think about uh, being a Marine. Say, I'll, I'll join the Marine Corps if you give me three square meals a day and you promise me this and promise that. They don't want you, do they? Or they'll break you of it pretty quick. Marines want a few good men. What's a few good men? You give up everything. You don't, you don't go in there with a list of things that you want. You give up your life. And why is that? Because Christ says, you don't come to me. This is the thing to understand. We have offended a holy God. We don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms. He defines the terms, right? We offended him. And his terms are, you give up everything. You give up all that you are. And this concept, and this has really been blown up in this whole lordship controversy. I don't know if you've ever been familiar with that, but where some people say, look, you can come to Jesus as your Savior, and then later on, if you really get serious about your Christian life, you can make him Lord and actually obey him. Yeah, that's what some believe. What did Christ say? Any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Man comes up and says, I'll follow you, but let me go first, say, bury my father. Well, let the dead bury the dead. Dad's not dead yet. He wanted to get his inheritance. Uh, let me go back and say bye to my mom and dad. Nope. 
If you're not willing to abandon all and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Now, compare that to the average invitation today. How many people stand up and say, if you come to Christ, it may cost you everything. It may cost you your life, your job, your money, your house, your home, your family, your friends. It may cost you your entire life. Are you willing to give that up? And, wh and why, why don't we say that? Why don't we tell people that? Because they don't want to tell them the truth. What, what, they may not know themselves. Yeah. What, what, do we, what do we think in the back of our heads? They won't come. They won't come. So what are you going to do? You're going to adjust the gospel. I went to the, I, the conference I went to last week called T4G was about the unadjusted gospel. What do you mean? You don't adjust the gospel. The gospel is what the gospel is. You don't, you don't change it to make it more acceptable to people. Well, I can't tell people it might cost them everything. I'll tell them instead that Jesus wants them to have their best life now. What have you done? You've adjusted the gospel. Christ said, if, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, what did that mean to the first century Jew? That they had to give up everything. You had to give up everything, pick up a cross beam, and walk out to be crucified. That's what Christ is saying. You want to follow me? It might cost you everything. You don't come to me with reservations. Now, might you know everything that it will cost you when you come to Christ? No, no none of us have, right? Matter of fact, God wants us to count the cost and make a conscious decision and say, yeah. That's what he says in Luke. Count the cost. What man among you who starts to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost and sees where they have enough money to build it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, he quits and people come around and mock him saying this man started to build and didn't finish her. Or what one among you who, who's a king and has somebody coming at him with 20,000 calculates, can I meet him with 10,000? Or what do you do? You try to sue for peace while he's a long way off. What's Christ saying? You've got to count the cost. You want to follow me? It may cost you everything. They want you to die. That was the problem with the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to be saved? Uh, keep all the commandments. I've done that. What am I missing? Sell it all. Didn't want to do that, did he? He didn't do that. Um, I think it is doing biblical injustice to separate salvation from discipleship. You can't separate the two concepts. There are those that say, well, if you dare God to save you, he'll save you. No, no, he won't. When you come to God, you come to God on his terms. What is his terms? All that you have for all that I am. There's a cost. See, we're told today, and this is one of the problems, one of the mischaracterizations. We're told when you come to Christ, it doesn't cost you anything. Well, is that a true statement? Yes and no, right? That's a yo. That's a yo. Yes, if you mean by that, can you buy salvation? You can't. You know, you can't buy it, but what do you have to give up? 
What did Paul give up? What did Paul give up? Give up a place of prominence in the Jewish community. Philippians chapter 3. I was born the born an Israelite, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the lives, blameless. When I saw Christ, I counted this all but human excrement and rotten filth in order for the value of knowing Christ. What did Paul give up? Everything, Everything he was banking on. There's a cost to being a Christian. We don't want to talk about that. Why? Because people may not respond. But what if you do that? What have you done? You've uh, adjusted the gospel. Why is it that the Navy SEALs have the best men in the Navy? Because they don't adjust the requirements. Because the worst ones don't make it or less than the best don't make it. Yeah. If you, it, it, unless you pour yourself into that, you don't get it. Why are the Green Berets the cream of the crop when it comes to the Army? You don't get it unless you give yourself up. You've got to deny yourself to get there. There's a cost. There's a price. I was watching one of those programs they show you make on the ring and everything, you know. Mm -hmm. And this gentleman, he comes in the room, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth, are you ready to give your life for your country? <laughs> and everybody said, yes, sir. <laughs> sir, yes, sir. I thought, man, what a question to ask. Are you willing to give your life for Christ? Maybe. Cost a lot, but it's worth it all. Yep. Yes. That's right. It's it's worth it. It's I, I often use the expression. Let's say Bill Gates walked into the room right now, and he he walked up to me. He said, "Alan, you know," he says, "I got in my wallet. I have a check worth at least one billion dollars, minimum one billion dollars. I'll trade you that check for everything in your wallet. What would any sane person on the planet do?" You can take you can take you can take the hundred and fifty bucks I have in my wallet for a billion dollars any day. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were to come to you later on and say, Hey, I Bill Gates gave me some money, how much would I say he gave me? I would say he gave me a billion dollars. I wouldn't say he gave me nine hundred and ninety nine million nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars. He give it. I'd say he gave me. A, that's that's what it's Christ. Christ comes up and says, "I have the infinite riches of the universe. I'll trade you for your garbage in your hand." And what should any sane person do? I'll give up the trinkets and the garbage I have for the riches of knowing Christ. That's what Paul said. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. Look how he faced that. And you know what? You don't have, and this is the point here, you don't have to water it down. I love what R.C. Sproul said at our conference. He said you can't adjust the gospel for two reasons. One, it's not your gospel. Yeah, right. Right? Not yours, right? I can't adjust the terms on 
something that you have defined, right? God's defined the gospel for what it is. I can't adjust the terms on that. I can't adjust it, and it's not mine to adjust, and I can't make it any better, can I? Christ walked around. I'll tell you what, he raised the bar when it came. And he would have flunked, Christ would have flunked most evangelistic programs. Yeah, the rich young ruler came and say, how could you have let that guy go? I mean, the disciples were befuddled. How did he get away? How did you let that rich guy get away? And Christ's response from the Schaefer translation is, this guy wasn't, this guy wasn't willing to, to follow me. If you're not willing to follow me, I don't want you. Why? If you don't want to follow Christ, what are you not doing? You're not trusting him, are you? You've got a better idea. You've got a better spin on this. You've got a better idea how to run your life. Christ raised the bar. And you see this again and again and again when it came to the disciples that wanted to follow him. In John 8, he had what he had. He had all these people following him. And then he started talking about the cost and what happened to them. Weed them out. Weed them out. Now you say, no, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong. How many people would attend Joel Osteen's church Sunday after next? If this Sunday he got up and says, if you want to follow Christ, if you want to be part of this church, it's going to cost you everything. Nobody would show up. Because he's been preaching the other way. Mm -hmm. They think he lost his mind. Nobody show up. He came out to tell the truth. They think it was a bait and switch. Yeah. yeah. I was watching him the other day. Don't the channel off. And I see all these people out there taking notes. On what? I'm to myself, what are you taking notes for? He's not even quoting any scripture. But he's saying what they want to hear. That's mm -hmm. why you take notes. He's saying some of the things that they want to hear. So mm -hmm. that way they can look it over. Do I have do I have the infinite wealth of God by being a Christian? Yes. Yes. But not here. Right. Not, not here. And there's some of like the Christian radio stations in our area, and I'm not saying like it's bad to listen to them, obviously, but like some of them I like, get irritated by. I don't listen to hardly any Christian radio except for a movie anymore. Especially my dad, he likes this one. And we listen to it for a couple of hours, and not once did you hear the name of Christ, not once did you hear oh. scripture. Not not a single time. It was uh I think it was the fish, John Tesh, late at night. Oh yeah, not, not intelligence one, for your life. Yeah, and it was intelligence for your life. The name of his show, and it's not once you hear the name of Christ, not once you hear anything from Scripture. He'll give you all this information: how to lose weight, how to be good at your job, how to like spice up like your I like have your best life, family now. life. Yeah, your best life. Yeah, and he'll tell you all this information. Not once you hear the name of Christ, not once you hear any Scripture at all. For two or three hours, and he'll tell you all these ways. And won't even like, and it doesn't even mention possibly. It's like, oh well, in the Bible it says, or even point you to a Christian, it'll just be like, oh well, here, like this secular scientist, blah 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 blah, says do this and you'll lose weight. Well, look at Christ's ministry. I mean, let, let, let's think. Let's think about these guys on TBN. What they say? Well, if you do miracles and all of that, people will be drawn to Christ. All right. Let's look at. What happened in the New Testament? What did Christ do? He healed everybody. 
He healed. And now wait a minute. Now this was not this garbage healings you see on TBN with the migraine and the lower back pain and something like that. This was people who walked in without an arm. They got an arm. They walked in blind. They walked. They left seeing. The guy couldn't hear. He heard. You were maimed. You were bent double. You were straightened up normal. Christ healed everybody. He cast out demons. And now that, he raised the dead. They were taking the guy to bury him, and Christ stopped the funeral procession and told the guy to get up and walk, and he did. These are bona fide miracles, indisputable. Even the Pharisees didn't dispute what he did. And what was the response? Crucify him. We want Barabbas. Christ did the miracles, and the people still did not believe. And you know why? You know, you look back at that. Christ, he spoke out against the injustice and the hypocrisy of the religious system of that day. And he took that stand. And not only did he take that stand, but in the process, he proved who he was by his miracles. And it just, it created the, the people just hated him for it. Because the truth... People will hate you when you preach the truth to them. Yeah. The people that do not accept the truth, the people that rebel against it, will hate the bearer of that truth. It's just a fact. Because the second Christ did not cater to their selfish motives, they wanted nothing to do with him. Remember, he, he fed the 5,000. I mean, they were cortazzo. They were filled up to the top. They couldn't eat any another bite. The next day they row across the, the, the Sea of Galilee to do what? Get another meal. It's breakfast time. It's probably good food too. And Christ said, you didn't come over here because you wanted to hear what I said. You came over because you were, you had eaten and your bellies were full. People didn't want Christ for what he said. They wanted Christ for what he did. But did Christ love everyone? Yo. No? Yo. Yes, in the sense that he gave his life for everyone. No, in the sense that not all are recipients of his salvation. You can't use yo. Yeah, you can. Oh. Yo, in the sense that. We think of love as an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's, it's, it's action. Christ loved us by dying for us. That's how he displayed his love. But see, here's what you have today. You have a Christianity today where you become a Christian not... Th this is the thing. You become a Christian, or some people have this idea, you can get people to become believers not by letting them see the majesty and wonder and awesomeness of Christ, but because of what they get out of the deal. You know, you look at the, you know, look in our old world today. Let's say you were a multimillionaire. You had a billion dollars. It's pretty easy to find somebody to marry you, isn't it? Oh well, yeah. Why? They're after the money. They're after the money. They're after the lifestyle. You could be as ugly as a mud fence, and you'll get people lined up down the block mm -hmm. to marry you. All those actors, no matter how homely they are, they got good looking lives. Yeah. 
Why? Because, because it's it so much. It's money. It made them look good. It's money. That's fine. But if you have nothing and somebody loves you, and then you got the real deal. Yeah. The whole point is, the whole point is, yeah. But and that's that's where God's coming. God says, do you want me for what you get out of it, or do you want me because you want me? Do you want a relationship with me? If you want a relationship with me, you'll be willing to give up everything to be with me. If it costs you everything, you'll gladly pay the price, because I'll take care of you. And to that point, we shouldn't, that's where we should be at, that we don't have to uh, be worried about the stock market uh, what's going no. on. Be a good steward, but yeah, don't stay but up I mean, at night to tossing and turning. About yeah. Don't don't wake up tossing and turning right. about it. Right. So we depending on, on what does Christ say? Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. heaven. Not here. And as Benny Hinn says, I don't want the streets of gold in heaven. I want them now. Well, that's all you're getting, Benny. The only gold, yeah, the only gold you get is right here. That's it. Your best life is now, buddy. Yep. Yeah, actually, that's what that's what we're doing as as born again believers, as we are cultivating a relationship with God. Yeah. In our life. And by the way, discipleship and what Christ called a discipleship here—that's what the church should be about. What is the church told to do in, in Matthew eight twenty-eight? Go and make a disciple. How do you make a disciple? Well. You got to start out by evangelism, of course, but that's not the end point. A lot of times in churches, pastors think, "Well, if I just get them saved, I've done my job." No, you've just started. That's like saying, "Look, if I can get the baby home from the hospital, I've done my job as parenting." Uh-uh, it's just started. It's just started. Christ said, "I want you to go make a disciple." How do you make a disciple? You, you bring them to salvation, then you teach them to observe all things. And you baptize them in what sense? Not dunking in water, but identifying themselves them with what? The church. Making them an active, participating member of a local assembly of believers. That's how you make a disciple. That's the job of the church. Did Christ choose you just to get you saved, or did he choose you in order to be with him in glory? Yeah, salvation is a step along the way, but it's not the end of the process. That's why I resist a lot of these modern evangelistic notions where the idea is if you just get them to come down the aisle and sign the card, they're in heaven, done. They're going to heaven. I can go get the next victim. Wait a minute. How do you know they're going to heaven? Well, they signed the card. They prayed the prayer. Hey, that doesn't mean anything. Those that do the will of the Father. Right. And how do you know you do the will of the Father? Well, you have a life of obedience. It's born out in your life. It's born out in your actions, your activities. We're to make a disciple. And discipleship is cost. It involves great cost. A willingness to die, Luke 14. A willingness to follow Christ at all costs, Luke 14. A willingness to leave all for Christ. A willingness to endure physical deprivation. To forsake family, to deny yourself. Notice what it says, a willingness. doesn't mean that you'll actually have to do that. 
but are you willing to abandon all? If Christ says you can have me or your family, which one are you going to pick? Christ. You can have me or your job. Ooh, <laughs> you can have me or your life. That's what you got to come to. What do you want? How bad do you want a relationship with me? You know, you look at any church, Joe, and you look at the people that are really what you would call a dyed-in-the-wool Christian. They're the ones that's doing the work. They're the ones that's given of their time and talent, given of their money. I mean, they're the ones that are really the committed part of that congregation. That if you took them out, the congregation would qualify. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are denying themselves. And they're, you take the average church, if you've got 10% of your people that's like that, you're doing good. Yeah. Well, what's, what's scary is um, there's a, somebody did a study of a Louis, Louis Palau crusade in, I think it was Venezuela, Caracas, Venezuela. Big crusade. And I don't know how many people came forward. I'm, I'm just picking a number, 1,000. 1,000 people came forward or something like that. They went and did a follow-up a year later and found only one person out of the thousand was even in a church. Wow. What happened? Well, how many people were saved? One. One. I don't know that, but... But that's what was left a year later. Well, how, how many people did Christ heal? How many lepers? He healed ten of them. How many came back? One. And what did Christ say? Your faith has... And I think he's saying your faith not only made you whole physically, I mean, it's already physically whole, but made you whole spiritually. Not everybody Christ healed is going to be in heaven. Can you imagine being healed by Christ? Can you imagine being one of those ten lepers healed and missing heaven? And what about the guy, what's one in John where he heals the guy who was sitting at the you know, the, 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 the uh, man that was sitting in, and Christ said, take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees were all mad at the guy because he took up his bed and walked. Or about the man born blind. I like that one, the man born blind. Where, they thought yeah, and, 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 and later Christ finds him and, and asks him, I said, do, do you also believe? He said, Lord, tell me who I should believe in. He said, I am the Messiah. He said, I believe. And he said, your faith has saved you. That, that blind man was healed, but then he became physically, spiritually healed. He didn't know all he knew that he was blind, now he saw. Didn't know much. He didn't know who he was. Yeah. He didn't know who it was. Tell me who the Messiah is, and I'll believe on him. And Jesus said, it's he who's speaking to you. He says, I believe. That's a no-brainer. But the whole point, here, here's the danger, and we'll take our break after this. There are hundreds and thousands and millions of people in churches who look like Christians. They sound like them. They carry their Bible. They talk God talk. They talk Jesus talk. But as Donna has said, they profess, but they don't possess. They, they look like the real thing. And you don't know who they are. And oftentimes, what separates the real from the false? When, you, when the bad times come along, who, who jumps ship? I mean, think about it. Judas, the, the, Judas had fooled 11 guys until the very end, right? 
He was never one of them. And the scary thing to me is that I, I look at our church here and I'll look out on a Sunday morning and I'll see five, six hundred people. And I have to realize there are some of those that are not saved. They think they are. They may even be members of the church. But their names are not written in the book of life. Don't you think we need to step up the preaching? So that they could at least hear the standard and at least be exposed. And this is the beauty of it. You can preach the unadjusted gospel. And the elect are going to do what? They're going to hear. They're going to hear and they're going to believe. And they don't care what it costs. They're not worried about the cost. They're going to come. And when you adjust the gospel, what do you do? You build the church of the tares. Lots of ways to build the church of the tares, right? So the question is, do you want to build Christ's church or the church of the tares? Preach the unadjusted gospel. Christ did. He didn't water it down. He didn't lower the bar. He didn't say, well, come to me. As, you know, follow me and we'll, we'll, we'll worry about the obedience stuff later on down the road. Uh-uh. He chased them away. So just tell the truth and elect it from you. Tell the truth. Tell it what the Bible says. Don't worry about, well, if I tell them this, they may not respond. Fine. You tell them the truth. And if God is working in their heart, they will respond. And it's not going to be you that's talking them into the heaven and the kingdom. Would you rather have them be your convert or God's convert? Yeah, your converts won't cut it. Nope. Well, Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And yeah. And I love what John MacArthur says. He said, Christ said he'd build his church, and I've chosen not to compete with him. That's right. Amen. I like that. Amen. Yeah. Are you trying to fill the church pews or heaven? All right. Well, you look, you, look at our, you look at most modern churches today. We're told we have to change this and change that and relate and not. And the idea there is if we do all this stuff, we'll, we'll be able to reach more people for Christ. No, you're not. You might get more people attending your meeting, but that doesn't mean they're going to become Christians. How do people become Christians? They abandon all and follow Christ. But if you're not telling them that, you're not telling them the unadjusted gospel. You're telling them that a gospel that has some adjustments. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.